Welcome. I'm Gretchen Keith-Steidel, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast, stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this 10-part series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practice, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view our full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast. Hi, my name is Rodney McKinsey. I'm the Vice President of Allied Development at Petzer Institute. And one way that I cultivate the soul is by starting my days with a morning practice that allows me to remember who I am and to allow my remembering of who I am to guide my day, to guide my intentions, to guide how I show up, uh, and to guide the way that I treat people. Today, we're joined by Rodney McKenzie Jr. He's Vice President for Allied Development at the Fetzer Institute. Rodney's an out person of faith, a community organizer, and a reverend. Prior to Fetzer, he served as Executive Vice President of Movement Strategies at Demos, Faith Director at the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, Executive Director of Resource Generation, and co-founded Expansion Church. Rodney's full bio is available on our podcast website. I am confident you'll be inspired and moved by this remarkable conversation. Rodney's wisdom is a true gift as he'll share what's needed to build a more loving world. Welcome, Rodney. I am so excited to talk to you today, and I'm hoping you can tell me a little story. I'd love to begin by hearing about a story from your childhood that can help us understand your earliest exposure to religion or inner awareness or a sense of spirituality and how it shaped you. Well, thank you. It's so good to be with you today. I grew up in Dallas, Texas. Uh, My family uh, was the kind of family that went to a church every day that it was open. So it was like Monday night choir rehearsal, Tuesday night Bible study, you know, Wednesday night mission meeting, (laughs) the Thursday night, something or the other. But we went to church, uh, every, every time the church was open and, uh, and because we lived in South Dallas, Texas, you know, the neighborhood that I lived in was a very poor neighborhood. I didn't, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but just, just seeing how, um, crack had devastated a very particular community, how people had experienced a level of racism and a level of hardships for being black. Mm-hmm. And so church became, church was as a child in a space in which, which you may have had a hard week, a hard week at work, or you may have felt disrespected at work, but church was the place where you were, you were called a saint, where you were called a beautiful child of God. And even the way that you, we walked into the space, we walked into the church, we were treated as children of the high God. And so there was a beautiful experience of where life could be challenging out there, but church was the space that reminded you or allowed you to elevate your understanding of who you really are. Right. And so I just remember going to church and experiencing a radical love 
uh, a radical love that allowed you to believe or allowed you to understand that maybe what you see, what you're seeing in your world is not the full truth of what is true about who you are. And so we would go to church and I would see my grandmother who was a, a janitor and I didn't fully understand that she was a janitor, but uh, her going to church and she was the mother of the church and people went for her for designs, for hats and people celebrated the gifts that she had because she was an amazing sower. So church, you know, the church was this space in which we were able to be seen differently, where we were seen as fully as human and where we were able to experience a promise that it would get better, that even if it is, it looks hard, even if you may be living in outrageous poverty in this moment, at some point, and maybe it's the hereafter, but at some point, something different will come. And that was my early experiences of church as this almost radical space that allowed you to remember or see yourself differently than how you were experiencing life right now. That's so beautiful. Not everyone gets to have that sense of safety or a sanctuary that they can step into so regularly to know and be reminded of who they are. But I also have to ask you about something. You wrote in a blog that you went through a period of mending of self that opened you to the recognition that you had to deal with some of the pain and the trauma of how faith had been a key struggle in your formation as well. I'm, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about that journey and how you chose to, to heal it and why. For me, it's fascinating how we imagine and understand darkness or blackness. I love in the tradition that I grew up in, it, it talks about that the, the world was created in the void, in the darkness. And sometimes that those dark spaces are the very creative spaces that allow us to actually experience something new. Uh, the dark spaces, the void, allows you to create a new experience in your life. And so there were moments as I was a child preacher and I grew up, you know, in South Dallas, Texas, child preacher, uh, and folks saw that I, I loved God and that I was able to put sentences together about God and was able to tap into something. At what age did you do that? Golly, I was like uh, 12 or 13 preaching. Wow. Uh, and I knew as a kid, I only wanted to do two things. I wanted to preach and write books. That's all I wanted to do as a kid. Nice. And so there was something about like knowing and always knew that I was going to be a preacher. Um, and I always knew I was going to preach and be a reverend. But there was something about being when I turned 14 or 15 years old and start going to started going to these churches preaching, I realized that the pastors were preaching about me. Uh, the pastors were preaching about gay people mm. and that gay people were going to hell. And that's a hard experience as a, as a teenager growing into himself, hearing for the first time, or like, like I know they said it before, but I finally heard it. Mm. Uh, one Sunday I heard when I was sitting on the pulpit, I remember hearing this preacher preach that gay people we're going to hell. I remember seeing the audience stand up and clap and cheer. And I remember the offering being greater than it had ever been. And it made me think something. It made me realize that I was the subject 
that allowed for offerings to increase, and that the same people that were shouting for me when I preached were the same ones that were cheering against me when someone else preached. And that made me stop preaching for a long time and stop uh, going to church. Uh, and it, it, it made me really reckon with who and what I was. And it, there were many years of uh, denying myself or many years of uh, feeling like I couldn't be who and what I am. Many years of trying to go to seminaries that, that would cure me or would change me or shift me. And that inner battle or that, that dark moment uh, or that, that moment of possibility and co-creation allowed me to realize something that will always be with me. And it was those moments of in that darkness when I actually was open to being who and what I was or open to God creating me as who and what I was. I recognized that I was created beautifully and that there was nothing wrong with me. And there's something about you having that inner experience of knowing that all is well within your soul. There's something about being able to have or take a breath and realize that you are good. Uh, mm-hmm. A great speaker always talks about that. Uh, one, of the, one of my favorite uh, uh, kind of quotes is that, that you are the, the judge, you know, you are the prosecutor and you are the defense like when will you deem yourself innocent and so i was able through those experiences to recognize my innocence uh, Mm -hmm. to recognize that i was good and that transformed me because it allowed me to see um, that i could love myself that i could be in the world uh, as who and what i am and it allowed me to appreciate the church I grew up with in a different way. It's an extraordinary journey to go through the recognition of betrayal of what was your core community and your space, your sanctuary for recognizing who you really are to then have that deny you and and to not see you or accept you, but to go through that process of being able to find again that space of love and acceptance within your faith is is profound. Can you tell me a little bit more about the inner work, I guess the practices that have been most profoundly transformative to for you that have supported you in going through that kind of transformation? You know, when I think about how I was able to transform and and really cultivate my own soul, it was really this notion of radical forgiveness. Mm. And so, you know, it's easy for me as a kid to be angry at the church I grew up with or be angry with my mother who I, I was waiting for her to take up for me or so many stories I can make about who should have done what. Yeah. But as, I, as I've gotten older... I've recognized that actually that each and every one of those experiences were really about me and my own doubts, my mm-hmm. own fears about that I may not be worthy of love mm-hmm. and how I attracted people in my life or experiences confirmed what I believe to be true about myself. 
And so there's one thing to recognize or to be angry with others externally. But there's another thing to have compassion for self and to see others as really helping you answer the questions that your own soul, your own being has about life and about who you are, right? So I could feel betrayed at a community that did not fully accept me, which is one possibility. And that's a strong possibility. And I can be angry for the next 70, 80 years at them. But there's another thing about radical forgiveness where I recognize that there was a part of myself that did not believe I was human or did not believe that I was lovable or believed that I was disconnected from life itself. And as I forgive myself for my own beliefs, I I realize that as I forgive myself, as I love myself, as I begin to question where did I learn these betrayals of self, Mm. other people were actually able to transform and love me because I modeled it by first loving myself. Amazing. You really embody the core of the mission of the Fetzer Institute that you now are working for, building the spiritual foundation for a loving world and the role that love plays in that from the inside out. So you serve as vice president of ally development. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about that role, the way in which Fetzer is really embodying that process of integrating a spiritual foundation into the bones of its work and how it expresses that in, in its, its work in society. Yeah. So my title is vice president for ally development. And I like to think of it as uh, the vice president of friends. <laughs> like, what does uh, I like it mean that. To be, yeah, I, I love this notion of friendships and, and transformational friendships. You know, one of the things that Betzer believes is we really believe at the core of our being that 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 love um, is critical, um, and and this notion that we all humans uh, should and can flourish, and this notion of human flourishing as an ethos, as a way of being for um, not only our foundation, but for the world. And for us, what we recognize is, you know, we give out money every year, we have, we do amazing grant making, amazing projects, but we really also believe that we can't do it by ourselves, you know, Mm -hmm. that we actually need uh, friends, we need uh, philanthropy, we need organizations to be committed and rooted in this notion of love this notion of radical love, this notion of like that we deserve to flourish and evolve and be who we are and be more and more of what we are. But we need more than just one Fetzer doing it. We need many Fetzers. We need many organizations. And so for for that reason, Fetzer has invested in a team that really is thinking about how do we build more friendships? How do we triple and quadruple the number of people who get this notion of love and human flourishing and who are applying that not as a tactic, but as a way of being in our society. You know, I grew up, I I was an organizer and spent many of my time organizing. And the idea of a win was uh, we just needed 50% plus one to win. Hmm. And now we're living in a world where I think about, was that the right notion of winning? Are we winning if 
we win by a few little votes. And what happens when we are unwilling to see each other? Because what we're really trying to do is win by a few. But what does it mean to actually even transform our understanding of winning? What if we don't win if we can't love and see each other? What if we can't win or we can't be if we're unable to love those who may vote differently than who and what we what we believe to be true? What if we can't win if we do not value and understand that people who have different maybe ways of achieving love and achieving human flourishing may be different than our own and right. we can disagree and be in relationship with each other? Right, so right. Fetzer is thinking about that. And that's what's important for us is to live that value, be humans and love each other and be with each other and be vulnerable enough to say, I hurt, I ache, I yearn. I mean, these are the like basic theological questions that generations after generations have wrestled with. And that that's what makes us human together is by wrestling with these ideas together. How do you go about that as as a large institution building partnerships and relationships? And can you tell us a little bit more maybe about your theory of change and a concrete example of how do we actually live from that place and inspire others to begin to transform their view of winning, of connection, of how we function in society? It's a great question. You know, you know, Fetzer Institute thinks about achieving this notion of love and human flourishing on a variety of ways. You know, one way is we are a foundation. We give out grants. <laughs> We're a grant-making institution. But we do that differently, right? So it's not about people uh, writing uh, this proposal where they're trying to squeeze in <laughs> these ideas into three pages and hoping for a little bit of funding. We actually do it differently. We have program officers and senior program officers who are in the world, who are building relationships with key leaders, mm. who are landscaping and understanding what's happening in the world and what's needed, and who are willing and able to make bets. Like, what are the kind of bets that we need to make that no one else may be funding right now, but that are critical for um, to change the way the world or shift the way we are doing love or human flourishing in our world. Like what? A good example of this would be, you know, we we recognize that retreat centers are really critical in the world. Right. And retreat centers in this in the in this moment of the pandemic have suffered and struggled. Um and oftentimes we see organizations spend millions and millions of dollars in hotels. But what about these retreat centers that are creating space for people to have a transformative experience? that are investing in the nature and, and, and allowing us to be on good land and to be able to eat together and have transformative experiences together outside of a corporate hotel, but can like actually support us in healing and transforming. And so we worked with some retreat centers to create this retreat center collaborative where there's over 150 retreat centers that are now coming together and connecting wow and sharing stories and successes and learnings with each other and being a community that can support each other through pandemics or through whatever is happening and share 
good curriculum and share good ideas so they can be a force to support each other in transforming people by having the space, by having the ideas, by doing the kinds of trainings that make the world different. I see. Or in our education program, like funding, thinking about education as a way to help young people deal with the big questions of their lives. There's a program that we fund called the Quest Program that's really about you know, as young people are growing up, what are those questions that they struggle with? Like, what does it mean to be alive? Or why am I different? Or why do I hurt? Like these basic human questions, but embracing those questions and actually supporting young people to really ask those questions and struggle through those questions so they can know who they are through the struggle, through the darkness, through those moments of confusion, but by being open to the quest, by being open to those questions that are critical in being who you are in life. So, I mean, what we do is we're, we, we're funding these big questions or these, uh, these opportunities in education or these opportunities around democracy, around bridge building, these opportunities around faith and spirituality. Like how do we bring different uh, 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 different faiths together to talk about what is love now? What does love call us to do now? And so bringing people together through our grant making, bringing through people together in our retreat centers so they can have a, a transformative experience to reimagine like what's possible in our world and building out the kinds of partnerships and the relationships with other grantee, grantors, people who are giving out money or networks or tables so that we can ensure that we are supporting the folks who are doing amazing work, who are needing the space to imagine something different. That's incredible. So it sounds like really by being embedded in the landscape of what's unfolding through these critical conversations, Fetzer can see where the transformation needs to take place and really building community around what those needs exist. Can you tell me more about how Fetzer sees this intersection and the linkages between the deep inner work and then what it enables in terms of social transformation? Yeah, our founder, John Fetzer, really believed uh, in the inner world, uh, the inner work. Um, And we really believe in that wholeheartedly. This idea that the inner expresses the outer. You know, if you want to transform the world, how do you transform the self? Uh, And so there is a deep belief, a deep philosophy for us that first we must go within. First, we must clear out and clean out and be clear and be clear about who we are and how, how we are love how we are the very thing that we are seeking to express in the world, how that inner work actually allows for um, a transformative experience externally. You know, I, I, I remember as a pastor of a church, I would always say that we want a revolution, uh, but mm-hmm. before we can have a revolution, we have to have an involution. How are we first, you know, going within, you know? Like, how do we like first that. do that work there? Because how do how do you... And I actually really um, experienced this by a great saint, uh, RuPaul, who says, right, like, uh, if you can't love yourself, how can you love anyone else? Um, It is this notion of if I am hurt, 
right? If I am uh, in pain, how am I going to treat you? Like, how can I love you if I'm wounded? How do I how do I see that there's possibilities in the world if I don't believe there's possibilities within me? Um, So hard, though. It's so hard to shift the orientation of, you know, it's someone else's fault to being able to be vulnerable to do that kind of inner work. I mean, do you get pushback and, and how do you how do you help people take that first step? It is the it is the it is the hardest work and it is the most rewarding work. Uh, how do you, how do you, uh, as Pema says, how do you hold your seat? Right. How do you hold your seat and go within? And how do you uh, love those parts of yourself that you never thought was lovable? And how does your reactions to the world really relate to your reactions and your understanding with yourself? And so we truly believe first that we have to do our inner work. And that is actually true with Fetzer. We actually have a community of freedom where every week for three hours, we do inner work together. Together. The community does its work, whether it's about uh, communications, whether it's about uh, doing um, silent practices, where it's about learning about new practices. We do our work first. Every week, all of you. Every week, every single person does its work together. That's remarkable. Uh, And then we also have moments where we can where staff are able to be in silence throughout the day. Um, like we really create the kind of space in which allows us to do that inner work and say that inner work is, se- we take that inner work seriously because we know that that inner work creates the external experience that we want to have out in the world. Um, so yet yeah, for us, it's really about first within uh, and as within, so without. And so, and then how do you help and support people? How do you fund the many different ideas or the different folks who are actually teaching that kind of, that kind of ethic or who are living that kind of ethic so that we can support more people and having that kind of experience? I mean, there's, there's true power in that, but it's, it's not always easy to recognize initially that that pause to go within, to carve out those moments for yourself and for your community to do that deep inner work will actually result in significant levels of shifts on a community and societal level. And a question about power that kind of comes from your background in uh, the organizing space. You once identified a, a definition of power as organized people and organized money. You know, we, we think about that from a, a political standpoint, from a philanthropic standpoint. But you also said that, especially for the marginalized, including LGBTQ people of faith, that folks must begin to embrace a theology of power that's prophetic, radical, and intersectional. And so I'm curious about your philosophy on this theology of power, what that means, and how it relates to connect for us the sense of inner power that is cultivated through this kind of inner work and then the role that it can play in transforming the existing dominant power paradigms that we're facing 
and continue to face, especially in this country, white supremacy, patriarchy, heteronormativity, ableism, and the list goes goes on. Oh, you have done your reading. Come through. I love it. Yes. <laughs> you have some really amazing philosophy out there that I, I just want to, I'm so glad I had this chance to find out more from you. That was great. Um, yes, what a what a great question. You know, power is a fascinating, you know, idea. Like, how do we understand power? Um, how do we uh, understand how we use power? And I do think that we're in a moment where there are there's a power over and a power with. Well said. And by that, what I mean is, how do we have power? Over? We we are used to seeing power over, right? Mm-hmm. We're used to seeing the ways in which, or a society in which, so you, we believe that one person is better than another person, or one person, because they have more than another person, can actually affect or, or push or force people to experience pain because they're not the same as someone else. It's like this power over notion. I do think that we're in a moment where we need to have power with. What does it look like to transform our understanding of power? So that it is actually about a shared power. How do we as communities transform the world so that we all can flourish, period? So that we all can have amazing, wonderful lives. So that we can all live and experience joy and happiness. Uh, When I was a kid, you know, my grandmother was a was a janitor, and and I just remember um, my grandmother being one of the most beautiful women I've ever met. She was amazing to me, and mm-hmm. and I think it was not just because she was my grandmother, but she was really amazing. And I remember when I would go to her house, she had this like a uh, there was this picture on the wall of her with a look a you know a stash or what do you call those things a little slash and said like Miss Miss Texas, and she was oh, like a wow. beauty queen, right? She was like this beauty <laughs> queen when she was younger. And I always saw her as this noble beauty queen. And I remember going to, she asked me to go to work with her one day. And I went to work expecting my grandmother to be like this noble person at work. I didn't know what she fully did. Yeah. And I remember her taking me to her little closet. We went to the school. I was like, oh, you work in the school? It's like, okay. We went to this little (laughs) closet, (laughs) this little closet. She pulled out her trash can. She put on her blue thing over her outfit, this blue little coat, and it said janitor and it said Earlene. And it was one of the first times I realized her name was Earlene. We called her Madeer, you know, Madeer, ah. my dear. And I followed her along in the school and I saw her be um, called um, all kinds of names, not but not the name I knew. I saw her being treated in all kinds of ways, but not the way not the noble person I knew. And I remember leaving the school heartbroken and my grandmother looked at me and said, don't be angry with them. Don't be angry. She's like, I'm making sacrifices so you can have something different. And it like exploded my mind. I was like, oh my God. But I also, I realized something else, right? My grandmother wasn't actually asking me to create a world in which now I treated people the way they treated my grandmother. I was meant to create a world in which that never happened for anyone. And so it is again like, how do we, and, I, and many, many folks who have been in the margins and um, 
who have lived in those liminal spaces, Asian American, uh, Asian women theologians talk a lot about this liminal space, like who experienced how power has harmed them. Sometimes we're afraid to even name that we want power, and we do. And so what does it mean to have power or authority over your life, to be the author of your life? Like, what does it mean that we can co-create and actually own together utilities to ensure that everyone can have utilities, everyone can have broadband, everyone can have access to the basic needs to live good and flourishing lives? And what would it mean if we didn't have to have power over each other to have it? Like, we could share power in a, in a transformative way so that we can experience the love of God or the love of life or the love of joy so that we can experience life and live it to the fullest together as a community of people. And that is a, that's a revolutionary act. Um, and you may not agree with me about who I am, or you may not believe that I should have locks, or you may not believe that I should be, uh, that I should have uh, a lover who is same sex. You may, we may disagree on those things. We may disagree. And, but we still can believe that I'm human and I should have the ability and the right to be who I am, even if you disagree, right? And that is a different formation of power in which we share it and we live from our humanity, uh, which is a beautiful gift. It's a profound invitation. It, it should, it should be the essence of how we relate and not be mm -hmm. radical notion. And it will take work and it will take mm -hmm. work. And you and, and Fetzer are, are in the trenches of trying to bring about this more loving world. So I, I have a few more questions for you about some of the, the tensions that we find in this space of philanthropy right now. Martin Luther King Jr. said, philanthropy is commendable, but it must not cause the philanthropist to overlook the circumstances of economic injustice, which make philanthropy necessary. And Darren Walker, I've heard him, um, the, the president of Ford Foundation, has said uh, many times that, that the goal of giving should not be generosity, that we should not be making um, uh, the donor feel better, but it should be justice. And that should we should be working on the systemic reasons for that issue that underlies the the reason that philanthropy exists in the first place. And so as you look at the role that Fetzer plays in other larger philanthropic institutions out there, what is the role that they can play to help dismantle these systems of inequity when so much of wealth is evolving out of that inequity and privilege itself? Gustavo Gutierrez says that the way that we should do our theology is that you should have, you know, your the Bible or your holy text in one hand and the newspaper in the other. <laughs> and what I loved about that idea is that it is uh, that our theology or our good text needs to be in conversation with what's happening in the world or be in relationship to what we are experiencing in the world now. You know, Catholic social teaching talks about, like, who's at the bottom? Mm -hmm. Like, who's the, where's the poor? Like, who's, who's, Howard Thurman says it like this, like, whose back is against the wall? 
And if we are actually doing our philanthropy with an awareness of whose back is against the wall, who is harmed in this moment, and having a vision about who's harmed, who's hurting, who's in pain, and how do we alleviate and transform that pain, not for an election cycle, not because it actually helps us uh, feel good because now we're going right. to be cool and we can we can earn more, but because that is that is our vision of the world of how we transform the world, and I think this is what I've learned from liberation theologies is that if we actually focus on who's the most harmed and transform their experience through policies, through giving, through every power that we have. It actually transforms the lived experiences of everyone. Because you are going to the heart of the matter and you're transforming to the heart of the matter of what's wrong, of who's being treated badly or unfairly. And we transform that. And I think for us, though, you know, Fetzer appreciates and understands, though, that politics by itself will not get us there. Right. That at the same time that we're doing the politics, as we're doing the policy, who is paying attention to the soul, the why we're doing it? Who's calling us to a greater space, a greater place? Who's reminding us of the greater vision that we're going after? I remember being an organizer and I would talk to other organizers and we were fighting. We're good at we're fighting. We're fighting. <laughs> and I would pause and go, so what do, what do we want? And sometimes, because we're so used to fighting, Get we've forgotten. Uh, yeah, we don't have an imagination necessarily of what we want bigger than what we see. And what I would offer is that what Fetzer, can, what Fetzer is appreciating that we can specialize in, it's not necessarily the politics, but how does philanthropy have a vision? How do we fund a vision that is greater than what we see right now? that is transforming the lived experiences of those folks who are in pain, that is actually allowing, that is creating a new ethic of healing justice, a new ethic of, of spiritual like work that is transformative, that heals, that allows people to experience life and human flourishing as a right, as what it means to be human, so that people recognize that you are becoming more of who and what you are. And we believe that through that inner work, and funding that understanding of the critical nature of the inner work and how that supports the external work, we can do amazing things in philanthropy um, and in the world, period, writ large. Extraordinary. So I think the tension for us is like, I think the only thing I would also just lift up is our tension is, are we willing to do this together? And I think that's a question we have to answer. It has to be a shared journey if we're going to transform collective well-being. Rodney, thank you so much for the opportunity to understand the critical transformative power of, of love and inner work in transforming society. How can we learn more about the work, the wisdom, the spiritual practices that you've talked about today? Where, where can we go to learn more? Yeah, you can go to fetzer.org uh, and uh, go to our website. Uh, we also have a Facebook page on Fetzer uh, with Fetzer Institute. But, you know, going to our website, Fetzer.org, will give you a lot of information about who we are and what we're doing and what we're up to. 
Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been such a joy having a chance to talk to you. Same here. Thank you so much. Cultivate the Soul is presented by Synergos, copyright 2021. To learn more, visit Synergos.org and find more episodes at Synergos.org. org slash podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever the best podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.